Welcome to the Meant for Good podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Holbrook, and I believe that each of us have been given gifts, dreams, skills, and ideas that we're meant to share with each other. My goal is to share stories that challenge and inspire you and I to connect with people around us because we are meant for good. Welcome to the Mint for Good podcast. I am so excited today to have my friend Matt Odemark on the podcast. Matt, you're so much fun to work with, and I really respect your project management skills. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's something I've worked on, so I appreciate that. We've done a couple projects together including collaboration between our bands, Shell Mm -hmm. and Jars of Clay, and also some string arrangements and some just recording on different sessions because Matt is a producer here in Nashville. So all that said, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to dive in with you today. I remember when you first started telling me about your idea for this podcast, and so I feel extra special to be a guest on it. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. I would love to hear what you've been up to lately, like what's new in your life and what kind of projects are you working on? Yes. What have I been doing lately? I always struggle to answer this question just because... My brain sort of like usually freezes up in the moment, but I have several music projects that I'm working on, working with various artists here in Nashville that I'm excited about. Some new artists, some established artists. That just involves a lot of the classic music producer stuff, like writing songs, editing songs, working on stuff, getting performances and budgets and things together and trying to figure out how to get people paid, how to get music made, and how to get it out into the universe. So that's sort of 90% of what I spend my time doing. My old colleagues in Jars of Clay, we still find an excuse every once in a while to get together and sort of relive our glory days, which I (laughs) actually have grown to be really grateful for. The further away I get from the active years of working with those guys, the more love and appreciation I have for them. And when we do get back together, it's just a really sweet thing to revisit. Mm -hmm. So we are occasionally doing stuff like that. Recently did a big renovation project on my house. So that also used a lot of my project management skills. And so as well as some of my amateur carpentry skills. And then other than that, we are raising three middle school boys in my home, my wife and I, and that sometimes feels like mostly what I'm doing. So (laughs) (laughs) the other things sometimes feel more like hobbies and that seems like the full-time job, but they're amazing dudes. I got a fifth grader, a sixth grader and an eighth grader and just trying to figure out what being a family and being a dad looks like in this moment in history is sort of the other thing I spend my time thinking about. I love that family is a full-time job. I think that's how it should be. (laughs) That's right. I no longer think in terms of balance in my life. I just think of like I have multiple full-time jobs. They all require all of me. I know that math doesn't make sense, but somehow that seems to be a more accurate description of it. (laughs) (laughs) It probably makes you Mm -hmm. value time even more. And like Mm -hmm. you were saying, valuing the time that you had with the guys Mm -hmm. touring around and... and Yeah, all those things. Yep. I love the gratitude that you expressed for that too. Mm -hmm. And I think... That's so important that that's present and that's how you are looking at that history with the band. I appreciate that. And, you know, I didn't always 
feel that way for sure. I mean, I started making music and working with those guys when I was 20 years old and worked with them pretty much full-time actively into my early 40s, actually probably into my mid-40s. So yeah, that's a long chunk of my life. And there were definitely seasons in there that were awesome and then seasons of real angst and struggle internally for me or then even just with us and our kind of shared endeavors. And so I'm grateful to be on this sort of side where mostly when we're together, we're looking back a lot. It's a lot easier to just be grateful and thankful. (laughs) Sometimes when you're in the middle of it, it's not as easy. So I'm I'm grateful for that. I have so many questions. (laughs) How did all of you guys meet? Well, let's see. There's a couple of different ways to answer that question. I grew up with one of the other band members, Charlie Lowell, who plays keys in the band and is also one of the other songwriters. And we've known each other since we were just out of middle school into high school. We grew up in Rochester, New York together. And then he went away to college and I stayed in uh, New York for college, but he was probably my closest friend in high school. We went to the same all boys Catholic high school together. And so he was my ride to high school every day. And so we spent a lot of time growing up together. And so I kept in pretty close contact with him, even though we went to different colleges after he left. And I knew he was pursuing music and we did a lot of music collaborating together in high school. So I was always very interested in what he was working on and wanted to keep up with what he was doing. And so it was where he went to college in Illinois, where he met the other two guys that ended up being the other two of the four of us that make up the primary members of the band. So I kind of met them through Charlie and then was offered an opportunity to join them shortly after their second college year when they all decided to move to Nashville. And so that's what I did. I joined them then. It was kind of a, it was a blind date of sorts. I knew Charlie really well and I knew the music they were working on, but the other guys I'd only met briefly and, you know, it sounded like a crazy thing to kind of move to Nashville and try to start a band. But I was mid-college and really didn't think of what we were doing as a permanent. I just was like, I'm midway through college. I don't have a lot to lose. I'll probably come back and finish this up in a few semesters. But this sounds like one of those opportunities you don't say no to. And so I, I kind of went for it and it hit me at a great time in my personal life. It was a good season for me to to leave home for a little while, having grown up in Rochester and gone to school in Rochester and stayed there. And so I needed to kind of do a little bit of leaving the nest myself. So that was kind of how I jumped into it. And then I did not anticipate that it would become something that would all of a sudden be a 25-year career decision. If I had known that when I was given it, I probably would have been too scared to say yes. So <laughs> wow. <laughs> so yeah, so that was a big surprise. But shortly after I moved down to Nashville, it became apparent that this thing had more forward momentum than I was realizing. And so, you know, within the first six months, we hopped on the bus for the first time and went around, you know, did a 40-city tour of a lot of like youth groups and churches and went to, you know, all kinds of places I had never been before. And, you know, three months later, we did it all over again, did another 40 cities. And within like two or three years, it was apparent that this train was kind of moving in a direction. And so I had to decide to either hang on for dear life or get off. (laughs) But I think at that point, it sort of seemed like, oh, this is like a thing that's really going to go somewhere. There was a moment where I had to decide, like, is this really what I wanted? It wasn't because I didn't think it had potential, but I guess where I grew up, the notion that you could start a band and that that would be your career was a pretty 
that didn't seem like a very viable life choice. Like anybody that I knew that even was a professional musician was either a symphony player or a music teacher. You know, I didn't know anybody that wrote songs and toured for a living. So I just didn't have a grid to even believe that that would be a likely outcome. So that was my learning curve was I had to sort of be like, oh, this is actually a likely outcome. I moved to Nashville. There was tons of people doing this with their lives. So then I had to sort of be like, oh, well, now that I'm kind of seeing a little more closely what this looks like, is that something that I think is for me? So I had to have a moment of decision at that point. But I eventually decided that I felt that I needed to be faithful to see it through to wherever it took me. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that it had been given to me. And I was very aware of the fact that I hadn't gone after and achieved it. It was sort of like it was this opportunity that was given to me. And I felt like the honorable thing to do would be to to honor the gift and see where it took me. So that's what I did. Now it's a very long-winded answer to how the band met. <laughs> no, thank you. Sounds like there was a lot of risk involved, too, in that decision. I think there was. I will say that when you're 20 and you come from a good family like I did, the stakes were, they felt high, appropriately high because of who I was. But in the grand scheme of things, they weren't that high. You know, I had the support of my family. I was in school. I could have returned to school. There was risk of failure and of being embarrassed by failure. But it wasn't like I was going to end up homeless or, you know, or something like that. I had I had a great support system. So I was grateful for that. And to that, I think it was a huge gift that my parents gave me was this sort of like soft landing pad to try something sort of risky with my life. I think that's what my parents really invested in when they, in the, in the jobs that they chose and the way that they invested in our education and, and in raising us. They sort of set us up to be able to have an opportunity to try something that seemed passion-filled and exciting to us, but maybe had a higher risk of failure than, you know, just playing it safe. So that was a huge gift that my family gave to me, and I'm super grateful for that. And so that was another thing that I felt like, well, man, you don't really honor your parents. If I just play it safe and pretend like I don't have all of that privilege and opportunity, then, you know, then that's just a waste, right? In looking back and now raising my own kids, I think about that a lot. Part of what I want for them is this sense of like, no, as a family, we love them, we got them, we support them, and we want them to sort of see the world as a big adventure where they could take some risks and try some things. And we'll love them even if the first three things they do fail, and we'll make sure that nothing bad happens to them. So the worst thing for me as a parent would be to see them just clutching all their things and playing it safe. I'm sort of like, oh, that's a, that's a waste. You don't really understand how much you have at that point. So, yeah. Sounds like trust, like your family trusted in you and. They really did. I mean, I think they played their cards pretty, they had pretty good poker faces. Like, you know, it is fun to kind of go back and talk to them now as an adult and be like, what was that really like? I think my, my mom has said before, she said, I really didn't think you were just going to leave and then be gone forever. I think she really thought was like, oh yeah, sure. Go to Nashville. Try that. That'll be fun. But she's like, if I had known I was like, you were moving away and never moving back, I would have felt and said and acted differently. (laughs) So, which I appreciate, you know, I'm sort of like, yeah, I didn't really know that that's what I was doing either at the time. So They did offer me probably more trust than I deserved at that point, and I'm grateful for that. I've been thinking on that, that when you know that the people that matter to you trust you, Mm. that can instill so much confidence. Mm -hmm. And the opposite of that as well, if that trust doesn't exist and 
you know, as a parent, as a family, like there's such an opportunity there to create that. Yeah. And it is difficult work trying to instill that sort of, that sort of faith and trust in my boys, you know, while at the same time watching them grow up and watching them sort of make big miscalculations about themselves and the world. And I think the best way I can understand it is in the wise mentors that I have talk about it is it does seem like your role as a parent is you're on this kind of continuum between protection and trust. And it is your job as a parent to protect your child, but it's also your job to trust and and embolden and um, you're sort of like empowering and protecting. And so those things kind of like pull in tension, you know, and it moves over as your child grows, the things you protect them from as a three-year-old are not the same things as a 12 and a 16, you know? And so as a parent, it's really easy to get stuck on that thing that's supposed to grow. And as kids, it's easy to get stuck in that. Usually wherever it worked the best is kind of where you want to stay. (laughs) Cause it's like, Oh, it's working. Do we have to change it? Cause changing it means pain usually. And all the things that come with that. So yeah, all that to say, I I think you're exactly right. Really what I wanted from my parents was this sense that they believed in me and they had trust in my ability to pursue the things and to prioritize my life in a, in a way that, you know, had integrity. And that is when you're a parent watching a child and you can see the sort of big blind spots and stuff that children inevitably have. It's hard to always know how to walk in that. Right. I can imagine (laughs) discipline and teaching discipline. It's hard enough for me to be disciplined, which is something I'm working on right now. So then to teach another human discipline, that is quite the feat. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, and and all these cliches are true too. And then usually the things that you sort of like angst the most about over your children are the flaws that you carry in yourself that you're the most insecure about. So if you're not a disciplined person, you so wish that your kids could be, because you know, sort of like all the pain that comes with not being a disciplined person. So you're like, man, if you can trust me, if you can avoid this, it'd be great for you, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but usually that's sort of, that's, that's often a sort of very problematic kind of dynamic when you're sort of trying to f- fix the broken parts of yourself and your child. Children have an amazing ability to smell and quickly resent that a mile away. Mm. So yeah, it's tough work. It's tough work. I am curious, taking it back a little bit Mm -hmm. to that first Jars of Clay album. Right. I would love to hear about the creative process and, you know, the production on that album is very unique. It is indeed. Man, you know, to be fair, like I kind of I entered the band that summer and a lot of the raw material that became that first record was pretty finished. I would say eight of the songs were maybe written already and then maybe the last four were written after I arrived in town. And the band had sort of a strange blueprint for how they were making their records And they kind of stuck to that through that first album. I was given an initial demo that the guys had made in college that had about eight of the songs that ended up on that first record already recorded once. And a lot of the elements like the basic drum programming was already done. Guitar parts were pretty much written. That record has a lot of acoustic guitar. It's very acoustic guitar driven. 
So guitar parts were kind of written, even basic vocal and harmony parts. I kind of came into something that was already in motion. And so I was just trying to sort of like catch up to how they were doing this and sort of what the values were. And I knew that acoustic guitar was a big part of the record. And that was the main reason they wanted to bring me in. There was a guitar player named Matt Bronlewey who had collaborated with them in college that didn't want to move to Nashville and join the band. So they really wanted to replace Matt with another Matt because that was convenient for them. <laughs> and they really had this vision that, you know, this was going to be sort of like beat driven music that was kind of inspired by sort of like some of the club and rave culture that they were a part of in college, but that had this very acoustic guitar forward. That was a thread that was going to be in all the music. And so they really wanted it to be guitar driven, which they felt like was kind of a unique recipe at the time. And which I agreed, I hadn't heard much music that was sort of incorporating those elements. So I just kind of, I moved to town and pretty quickly within probably six months, we signed our first record deal and began to sort of work on what would become that first record. And so I was just kind of catching up to how they had been doing it. I hadn't spent much time in the studio. So all of that was new to me. I had interned at a small recording studio in Rochester, but I was just getting my feet wet when I left. So that was all, you know, a big learning curve. So the big pivot they wanted to make from the early demos of those recordings is they were a lot more synth driven and more like rave kind of breakbeat sort of material. And they thought the acoustic guitars, what that was so neat, they wanted to kind of expand the instrument base and bring in more other organic sort of counterpoints to kind of join the acoustic guitar in that tug of war between program drum beats and instrumental music. One of the reasons Nashville was a perfect place was there's all these great instrumentalists here. There's great string and mandolin players and basically orchestral musicians, all the kind of instrumentalists that where they were in school in Illinois, they didn't have access to those kind of collaborators. So they were super excited about that. And that was the big change in recipe from the demos to the record. So I just had to learn the guitar parts. And then there was three or four songs that we finished. Steve and Matt Brownlee had a really interesting way that they composed guitar parts. They worked in some alternate tunings that I had to learn a bunch of. And I'd never made music this way. So this sounds kind of to a music making podcast, like super basic, but, but there was this sense of like, we're going to create these sort of like interlocking acoustic guitar parts where part of the chord voicing will be held by me and the other part will be held by you. And so it creates this opportunity for sort of like richer chord voicings and this kind of cool harmonic texture that I thought it was really cool. I had never thought about guitar in those terms. So I learned a bunch of those tunings with Steve, the songs we wrote together, we used kind of similar, a similar approach to, but they were especially fun for me because I got to actually begin writing my own parts in that structure. Then beyond that, I mean, there's a lot to talk about with that record. We worked with producer Adrian Ballou, which was a really fun process. He was an amazing person to get to know. He's worked all over the popular music world, whether it's with Nine Inch Nails or Talking Heads or, you know, he's just sort of known as one of these sort of outlier, comes out of the progressive music scene, multi-instrumentalist, kind of a mad scientist sort of mentality, but very upbeat and very sweet guy. And, you know, we were just a bunch of teenagers in his studio. For us, it was like, I can't believe this is happening for him. I'm sure it was just like, a, well, here's what I'm doing this week. He was working all the time. And his manager brought us this 
opportunity. But Adrian was a huge door opener for us at the time that our record came out sort of modern rock and it was kind of the tail end of grunge music and so the modern rock radio format really drove what was popular still in the mid 90s and and adrian's sort of attachment to the project really opened a lot of doors especially for a band from nashville like us who was coming out of the christian music scene i think just the fact that his name was attached to the project because that format at the time was pretty bigoted towards you know I mean, it was a pretty cynical, dark, sort of anti-religious wow. format. And so so I think it was a pretty unlikely, you know, there would have been a lot of bias towards a bunch of Christian college kids getting to be considered in that. And so I think Adrian really opened a lot of doors for us, as well as just taught us a lot about making records and really humored us in a lot of ways. Like we had some pretty wild ideas on those songs we did with him that we had nothing to point to as to why those ideas were especially good or would work. And other than we just had them and thought they were neat and he was willing to kind of chase them with us. So that was fun. And then the rest of those tracks, we just blew all our budget working with Adrian and hiring out strings. So the rest we sort of had to produce on our own, which the label was generous enough to let us do. And so that's kind of a little bit about it. I mean, the sound of it is very unique mm -hmm. to me. And I think that's probably because you guys brought so much of yourselves to it, mm -hmm. exploring those ideas and having a producer who was willing to go there with you, right. like you said. It's very unique. I mean, I've listened to that album so many times and I still love it. And I don't know anything like it. There aren't any other albums that I know of that I would put in that category next to it. It's kind of eclectic and it's really a beautiful piece of work. Well, thank you. There were a couple other dynamics that I think really informed the way it sounded. One, we weren't a live band before that. So the album really was a studio construction. We sort of approached it more as people that were sort of learning how to use the recording studio space. And it was like an experimental project with those tools. So I think that's part of it. Like we didn't have two years of playing those songs on the road and an idea of what that should sound like and coming into the studio with that. So that was one thing that certainly made that record different than any other one for us. After that first record, we probably did seven or 800 shows. So we never went back into the studio again without having played a lot of shows. So the live playing definitely began to influence our recordings more and more after that. I think the string arrangements that Ron Huff did for that record had a huge impact on the sound. We were like sort of soundtrack nerds and stuff. And so not only were we listening to popular music, we had a, we had a pretty eclectic listening base. Like most young music aficionados do, like we were Especially at the time, it wasn't like it is today because like music wasn't available everywhere at all times on all f things. You had to go and purchase records and you had to go dig through crates. You had to have a lot of curiosity for music to kind of to listen beyond just a small sort of niche of it. And I really credit the other guys to that. I mean, I was super into music, but being around them during those years, they were just voracious. Dan had worked at a record store, so I think that really jump-started him. It gave him a place to really feed his appetite for music, and so he was always listening to a lot of broadly varying set of genres. But that said, like, not only were we, you know, college kids that were going to, like, raves and listening to that and thinking that was cool, 
we were also listening to the college music of the time, which was like Indigo Girls and different sort of songwriter-based stuff that were doing all this beautiful work with harmony and acoustic instruments. And then we were soundtrack nerds too. You know, we were listening to our favorite films and were struck by how the music was being constructed for those. And so the record was really a pastiche of all those things to a greater or lesser degree. It was sort of like, let's take our love of songwriter-based music. Let's jam that into music that is more linearly constructed, like beat music. And then let's try to make it feel like when you go to a movie and the soundtrack sweeps you away. How do we, <laughs> like, those were all the things that music was sort of doing for us as young music listeners. And so we just wanted to try to make a record that sort of flipped all the same switches because those were our favorite things about what we were listening to. That makes so much sense. <laughs> I think you accomplished it. <laughs> I mean, it, and we were lucky it worked because it probably shouldn't have. I mean, like, just because you have diverse influences doesn't mean when you mix them all together, it's going to taste good. So. <laughs> oh, so true. <laughs> yeah. What was it like to create this album and have it blow up in the Christian genre and mainstream, especially with Flood? I remember hearing that on the radio. Yeah. It was so many things for you and for those that are listening here. I mean, just put yourself in that frame of mind you were when you were 20 and 21 years old. We stopped mid-college and jumped into this and the most outrageously successful years were those first three years. So just kind of picture yourself as a mid-college human sort of having to kind of quickly pivot from this into into whatever this this is. And it was wild. I mean, it was very overwhelming. And I think musically it was really exciting. We couldn't believe how many different people were hearing our music, you know, we had all this sort of like fun, you know, that thing you do kind of moments of like hearing our song on the radio. And I remember going to my cousin's wedding and after the groom's dinner, we were all going out somewhere to like hang out with the bridal party. And like my song came on on the radio while we were all in the car together. And everybody was like, oh my gosh, we're in the car with a famous person. <laughs> so we had all of those crazy. And I was just like, it was out of body for me. So those moments were fun. We got invited to play at a lot of festivals at the time that were lined up with bands that we were just like like crazy big fans of. And so it was like all of a sudden we were going from like kids playing in the basement of the church to like peers with all of our musical heroes. And so that was super exciting. There's also the added layer of us sort of coming out of gospel music and being sort of like with a background as Christian singers and then when our music sort of exploded outside of that, it wasn't, we didn't, it wasn't known by either side really who we were yet. So it was different than like when Amy Grant crossed over or something like that. Amy had made, you know, seven records before that. She was sort of a known quantity. That was more a question of, is she changing who she is? That was sort of the big conversation about where her faith fit into her music when she was doing that or when Michael W. Smith was experiencing that. But for us, nobody knew who we were. So like the Christian audience didn't really know, like, are they really on our team? And then the mainstream people just thought we were just another new band. And I remember feeling incredibly stressed and burdened by that whole dynamic. I don't think I realized how heavy a burden that was going to be to try to carry the Christian band label and to try to figure out how to do that with integrity 
and to not really have at the time much guidance that I could look to, you know, it wasn't like people had done it ahead of us that I could really sort of look to. I certainly didn't know anybody well that had been in the position that we had been in before. And honestly, I think at the time there really wasn't Michael and Amy were about the only two people that could sort of appreciate what we were going through, but it wasn't the same as what they went through. So at the same time, it felt pretty, felt lonely, felt like those stakes were really high, felt like we were bound to really disappoint a lot of people no matter what we did. And I didn't like that because I don't like disappointing people. So those years were not existentially were not my favorite years. It was harder for me to enjoy the moment during those early years. I just remember feeling incredibly burdened and worried. And then I think, you know, whenever you have like big success like that, like an uncalculated success, it's amazing how quickly your humanity jumps to this thing that I didn't do in the first place. How do I keep it going? So I don't even know how I, how I started it in the first place, but now I've got to try to figure out how to keep it going. So those two dynamics definitely made those years very exhausting. And frankly, a lot of them were pretty joyless. It was sort of this sense of like failure was always around the corner. And so the best you could hope for was to avoid it or push it off for one more day. (laughs) But it was coming. There was no, even if you avoided it, there wasn't this sense of like, I can let my guard down. It's like, no, because tomorrow I got to kind of keep it, you know, in all that pressure, sort of our immaturity was, you know, we were still 19 and 21 year old kids. So we were only as mature as we could be. So I'm grateful that in that cocktail, worse things didn't happen, to be honest. Like, I feel like all the ingredients were there for any version of the story that you want to tell. That's cliched. You know, we could have broken up earlier. We could have gone out on a bender one night and somebody gotten killed. I mean, like just any, like when I sort of look at the ingredients to those years, I'm grateful that that we emerged out of them eventually with a creative unit that sort of knew how to work together and that was able to continue to work together for the next 25 years. And then we're even able to sort of emerge out of that as people that I still consider some of my closest friends and, and who I probably have more respect and more enjoyment for now, even than I did in those years. So for all of that, I feel super grateful, but not because we had any sort of secret sauce. It feels more like 10,000 arrows were shot at us and we were able to dodge about 9,000 of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we were able to only get hit with just enough that we they didn't kill us. <laughs> wow. So it's hard to sum up those years. So I apologize that it was such a long answer, but, but there was a lot that went into that. So yeah, it's hard. On the one hand, I'm super grateful that it happened. So many good things that happened in my life trace back to that. Everything that I've done musically since then probably is largely due to what happened in those early years. And the career I have now and the fact that I met my wife and now I have a family, like it's all tied to those early years. So mm. I'm both grateful for it, but have no desire to relive them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's an amazing place to be in and to still have that relationship with your bandmates. I know you guys collaborate a lot, which is so fun. I love when I hear the new projects you guys are working on. Mm. And, and also thank you for your honesty about all of that. I mean, it sounds really stressful 
constantly living in that fear of disappointing others and or it's like you reach this pinnacle and then where do you go right and honestly most of what we did after those first three years when you look at the measurable results they they'd never lived up you know and so we were constantly having to sort of manage that and by tangible results i mean like at the time it was like how many records did it sell how much radio play did it get the metrics of that first record like nothing we did ever sort of lived up in terms of like splash that that did so and so you know that was hard to sort of reckon again as just a young person kind of going what does that mean for my creative work? Does it mean that I should stop if I can't repeat the same result that I did? Does that mean that I'm doing it wrong or maybe I'm just no good? I didn't have any tools, nor did I have a lot of guidance about how to internalize that, you know? And so we just had to kind of live through it. And then I will say eventually, I feel like we were given a community of creatives and of other artists that had sort of like a spiritual true north that really began to speak wisdom into that for us, that we could trust, you know, that we're part of our trade. They were sort of like, okay, of course you're feeling this way. That's because of this. And some of that stuff, although it matters, you know, for the act of your creative work, here's what you internalize and here's what you don't. And so I feel like those mentors and relationships really became key for us and in, in trying to figure out how to find what we found, which was eventually a rhythm that we could sort of return to that would produce results that continued to move and energize us. And then how to maintain and sort of nurture a team that could help us bring enough of that content to people that we could build a livelihood out of it without sort of having to kind of hope that we got picked again by somebody somewhere that was going to all of a sudden make our record huge what a gift to have that community and those mentors it's a real gift of nashville i think being in a city that has so many people that sort of do what we do there there were a lot of sort of people we could look up to people we had looked up to that had real guidance to offer us and i'm grateful that there's a spirit of that there's even a recognition amongst people that have been here for a while that we need to sort of like look out for the people that are younger in their journey and kind of help them with some of these inflection points that they're invariably contending with. Do you have any advice for the next generation or current creatives who maybe haven't reached that level? Mm -hmm. There's a point like what you came to, Mm -hmm. that question of, is it worth it? Should I keep creating? Right. I'm curious what you would say to someone in that position and also what you would say to new artists? Yeah. I spend a lot of time with newer or younger artists these days. I mean, every year that goes by, the majority of musicians are younger than me, just by the nature of things. But I really enjoy my time with them. A path in the arts of any sort of form or fashion is a challenging path, usually a nonlinear one. And that's usually why most parents or wise people try to shoo you off, because they know invariably that The arts is not often a meritocracy. Just being the best doesn't guarantee you anything. And just the career in general usually is not one of linear and constant growth. I tend to think of it more like gardening or something like that, where you are constantly tilling the soil. And some years you have bumper crops and some years are dry. There's a lot of work to do, but there's a lot that's out of your control. You can't make it rain. You can't, you know, control 
if the buzzards come or not, but you do have to keep seed in the ground and you do have to till the soil and you do have to be prepared for the rain to come or Mm -hmm. nothing to grow. As I've had the privilege of doing this for a long time and being able to look back on it, that's kind of seems like a more accurate description of what this life really feels like, you know, as you sort of do it over the long haul. And so I think when I'm talking to young people, I'm usually asking questions like, is that the kind of life you want? Because there's amazing things about that, but there's also perennial challenges that no matter how good you are at this, they're not going to go away. You know, you're not going to graduate out of them. It's unlikely. I try to sort of, as best I can, be honest with them that that's what this feels like. It's good to sort of pause and reflect and ask yourself some deeper questions. Is that a life that you can be at peace with both the ups and downsides of it. And it's okay if not, you know, there's the other beautiful thing about music is that there's lots of ways for it to be a rich part of your life, you know, as your career enterprise is only one of them, but it can still be a rich part of your life, regardless of whether or not it's, you know, the center of your kind of vocation. But I love having conversations with young artists. I do think there's a lot to think about, like these sorts of questions. And I I generally tend to resist advice giving. I usually just try to figure out what sorts of questions artists have and sort of help them on the journey of finding the right questions, affirm them if if I feel like the questions they're asking are the right ones or, or sort of maybe lead them towards some other questions if I feel like, you know, they're kind of preoccupied with the wrong things, which is easy for us all. That's the beauty of community for all of us is just to kind of be like, oh yeah, you're super preoccupied with this. And that seems like not that important. <laughs> like that's a good gift <laughs> that community and mentorship gives us because we don't always know. And myself included in that, I still need that sort of sounding board from people. And that's all I can think of at the moment. I don't know if that's advice or not, but. <laughs> it's so true. I think it's really easy to be self-consumed. Sure as an artist in Mm -hmm. in the industry and to just be consumed with what you're feeling and writing. And I think you're right. Community is so important. And it sounds like that was a really crucial thing for you in the midst of the struggle that community really helped you. So it's so good to keep in mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's like without community, I don't know that I could have persevered. I just leaned so heavily on those voices to help me remember the important things. Community definitely at the same time would usually sort of give me renewed enthusiasm for the work when I was lacking because somebody would play me something they were working on that would sort of arrest me again. I'd be like, holy cow, like that's possible with music. Just that part of it is so great because when it's just me sort of working on my thing, I dry out really quickly. I get tired of my own ideas. So just that influx of somebody else's imagination and energy is so refueling for me. I know some creatives are able to sort of exist in zip codes or areas where they're sort of the one unicorn in their world. And some people get a lot out of that and they're able to do amazing work that way. I'm definitely not built that way. I needed a place like Nashville that was filled with other guitar players and songwriters and musicians and people trying to work out their faith and where I could sort of really see myself and other people, but then also sort of figure out my own voice in the midst of it. That was crucial for me. So, Man, 
Matt, thank you so much for your time and for thank sharing. Thank you for all your great questions. I'll have to have you back because... Yeah, um, I feel like we scratched the surface, right? I feel I like, know, like I feel we like... just got going. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. And please feel free to rate this podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. You can share it, leave a comment, or continue the conversation on Instagram, Facebook, or Substack. Just look us up at Mint for Good Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Byron Saul. He provided financial support and overall encouragement for the engineering and production of today's interview. If you would like to contribute towards future episodes, you can email me, mintforgoodpodcast at gmail.com.